Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. If you're not already on the Masculinist mailing list, please go to themasculinist.com and sign up today so I'm able to keep in touch with you, uh, especially in the event I somehow managed to get canceled here. I'll let you know where I, where I pop up. And if you haven't uh, left a rating on iTunes yet, please do. We're up to 175 ratings on Apple Podcasts, which is amazing. It's a five-star rating. I really appreciate it. And please share this podcast with people you think might be interested. Today, if you will, this is sort of a postscript to my series on conservatism. I'm going to talk about one aspect of the conservative mindset that really struck me when I first read George Nash's canonical history of the conservative movement. And that is this. Conservatives, even when they were a minority movement that was despised by all the major organs of society, would jump into the middle of the fray in order to try to save the institutions of society from some threat, even when those institutions, as essentially all of them were, were actually hostile, actively hostile to conservatism. And this is really best seen in the response of conservatives to the campus unrest of the 1960s. The universities, of course, were run by the very liberals that conservatism was founded to oppose. If you want to get a good sense of this, you can read Jeffrey Cabba Service's book, The Guardians. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Rusty Reno also recently wrote about it in First Things. It talks about uh, Yale and some of the other colleges of that era. And you'll see that the people running schools like Yale and Harvard intensely liked, disliked William F. Buckley and his conservative movement. I mentioned in a previous podcast the massive uproar over God and man at Yale, uh, which, you know, for which people probably never forgave Buckley, probably. And in the late 1960s, when the campus revolt started, it was the new left against the old left, right? And if you're a conservative, which is to say someone marginalized from the universities, it's not clear why any of this was really your problem. It looked a lot more like the liberals' problem. Nevertheless, the conservatives decided to take the sides of the university administrators in bringing order to the campus. Now, keep in mind, these university administrators were people who opposed everything conservatives believed in. Here's what George Nash wrote about that. Conservatives trace the root of riots and campus disturbances to the corrupt intellectual elite, not legitimate grievances. Conservatives saw little difference between the old and new left. Much as with communism, Conservatives saw themselves as trying to preserve the country against collapse and opposing the campus radicals. They could have simply stood back and let the liberal-dominated universities fall, or even accelerate the push, but they seemed to have tried to jump into the breach, which would be a typical conservative move. And this tendency to jump once more into the breach to defend their enemies against activist attacks, it's something that continues to the present day. You know, you'll frequently see conservatives defending some guy on the left who just got canceled, even though that person would never defend them. In fact, he'd probably jump for joy if it were a conservative getting canceled. And they're making a you know a big deal about this guy who was forced out at the New York Times right now over this trip to Peru. You probably read about it. You know, and you'll frequently see Ben Shapiro or some other conservative types loudly running to the defense of people on the left uh, who run into trouble. You know, interestingly, they seldom defend people on the right, uh, at least people, not people who are not part of their club. You know, how many of these anti-council culture conservatives said a word when Mike Cernovich's documentary hoaxed was pulled by Amazon? Uh, None of them that I saw. You know, in fact, they'd be very happy to see someone like Cernovich booted off the Internet. Uh, But they'll come to the defense 
of they'll come to the defense of the left, powerful people on the left who control the institutions of society, who are embedded in those institutions and who actually oppose everything that they stand for. Uh, it makes no sense. And um, you know, as I say, this idea of coming to the defense of people who hate you, it just doesn't make sense today. It's not like you're fighting to establish some principle of free speech. I mean, there are no principles or rules today, right? Just because Disney rehired the director James Gunn after they originally fired him for his pedophilic tweets, that doesn't mean you're going to get your job back. The rules are applied very, very unevenly, right? The rules are applied, you know, with severity against the the, the unfavored and are, are completely ignored in the case of the favored. So it's not like there's really any principles left to defend today. You're basically just being a chump. And I, I think this concept of once more into the breach applies well to today's American Christians. I mean, we always, we're always seeing activism or commentary and all these kinds of big macro social problems. And that may have made sense back in the 50s when we were at the high watermark of church attendance or when Christianity held a sort of normative status in society and when clergy held a sort of moral authority in the country. But it sure doesn't make any sense today when Christianity is a minority culture. We live in what I call the negative world. This is an era in which American society at large, certainly its major institutions and culture-shaping organs, have reputed Christianity and in fact see Christianity and Christian morals as a threat to the new social order and undermining the new public morality. So in that light, I think we as American Christians, and that probably applies to people in Europe, although if you're listening from Europe, you've probably already made this shift, need to make a painful mindset shift to start thinking like a minority rather than part of the broad mainstream, right? Frankly, I mean, it's questionable whether there is a broad or central mainstream uh, of American culture today, but if there is, we sure ain't in it. And, you know, I think that means we need to spend much less time trying to solve society's big problems and much more time focusing on our own communities and our own neighborhoods, right? We need to realize that many of the problems of our societies exist precisely because of the people who are running this place and who and you know those people have beliefs that are in many ways anti-christian today everybody wants to try to guilt trip you into engaging in some social problem that they demand you get involved with but we need to ask ourselves like why are those problems our concern and i'm not to say i'm not saying they're not problems i'm not saying they're not legitimate problems but why are they our problems to solve you know for most of them many of them you know I just don't think they are. Well, what problems am I concerned about? Well, one is the decline of Christianity in America. And oddly, this seems to be one that too many American Christians actually don't care all that much about. Somebody just tweeted a quote by a uh, Southern Baptist guy. I think he's at Midwest Baptist Theological Seminary named Jared C. Wilson. And his quote was, quote, American evangelicals are prone to panic about the waning faith in our nation, but we forget America is not the center of Christianity. The center of Christianity is seated at the right hand of the Father, and of his kingdom there will be no end, unquote. I mean, that is remarkably indifferent to the fate of millions of people in this country to say nothing about what a declining Christianity in America implies about our children and our grandchildren, right? I want to care about problems that are closer to homes or problems where there's at least some reason to believe I can make something of a difference. And others I want to be disengaging from. I'll just give you kind of an example of, of a problem here. Crime. It's like a nationwide crime wave. Uh, there's particularly been a lot of focus on places like San Francisco and New York, 
where, you know, you've had these DAs that are basically, you know, dropping charges right and left. They're eliminating bail. Uh, there's been all this rising violence against Asians, et cetera. Well, here in Indianapolis, you know, we beat our, you know, by far beat our all-time record murder high last year. Uh, crime is bad here in a lot of ways. Now, it's not like 1970s New York or anything like that, but we do have a serious problem with crime in the city. I mean, and the suffering of the victims and their families is immense. And it has a big impact on the city because crime is kryptonite, especially violent crime. It's kryptonite to middle-class families. You know, I just talking with someone the other day, uh, he and his wife were living in a, an urban neighborhood of Indianapolis and they had a home invasion. And the next thing you know, now they're up living in a suburb, right? So that, that there are real consequences here. Well, unfortunately, the whole leadership class of the city is, I mean, I hate to say it, they're kind of de facto indifferent to crime. I mean, they support the depolicing agenda and they have no agenda that I can see to actually reduce crime other than sort of 1960s retread rhetoric about addressing the root causes, which even if true, is not going to have you know any effect for years or decades even. And at the end of the day, in that environment, I just got to basically stay out of the issue. I mean, if people ask me my opinion, I'll tell them, maybe I'll tweet about it here and there. But ultimately, the problem with crime and indies is on the shoulders of the people who are running this town. And that's not me. And telling me that I need to care about it really means telling me to support those leaders and what they are doing. Well, I don't believe in what they're doing. I mean, I wish them well. I hope it works. I mean, I'd love to be proven wrong, but I'm not spending my time supporting efforts by people who are doing things I don't believe will work or engaging on an issue where I don't have any leverage to make change. Instead, how am I going to approach the issue? Well, I'm going to ask questions. Well, where should our family live? You know, what neighborhood? Should we live in the city or suburb? And, uh, you know, crime is not going to be the only consideration in that. We've been very safe where we are. You know, we don't live in fear. But, you know, I'm, look, I'm looking at terms on crimes of how it affects us and what we need to do to make sure that, you know, we take judicious account of it in our decision making. And again, I could act like I'm part of the mainstream that wants a stronger approach on crime. I could reassure myself with polls that show broad community support for the local police department, which is very, very real. The police department polls well. You know what, that would be deluding myself. I mean, the people who live here basically like things the way they are. And this is Indiana. And even though India is a blue city, it still has a sort of a red state ethos on public services. People here don't want or expect much from their government, uh, whether that you know be policing, snow plowing, parks, whatever. Snow plowing is another good one, by the way. We just got nine and a half inches of snow a couple of weeks ago, and the city basically doesn't plow residential streets here. So our streets are covered in snow until it melts off. You know, and I, I just have to accept the fact that I'm in a minority here and start acting like it. You know, otherwise, I'll go crazy. I'll go crazy if I try to convince the people who live here and the city government and all that to start, you know, acting in ways that I would like to see them act, you know, to maybe try to make some of these things better when, in fact, they just don't want to do it, right? And I think similarly, Christians are in the minority in this country and need to start reconciling themselves to that, and more importantly, acting like it. And that means letting people in places who choose other paths do that, and then allow them, you know, allow them to have the consequences of that. I mean, it's like Paul talking about that person in Corinth who was engaged in sexual sin. He said what? He said, I've decided to turn such a person over to Satan for the destruction of his body, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. He's like, hey, if he wants to do that, he can go do that. And hopefully someday the consequences of what he's doing will bring him back to the faith. 
And reading Rod Dreher's Live Not By Lies, it really occurred to me that many modern American Christians believe, you know, that we should be ready to suffer for our beliefs. Christians need to be willing to suffer for our beliefs. We have to be ready to take up our cross. In fact, J.D. Greer, who's the president of Southern Baptist Convention, he just made a tweet recently talking about taking up your cross. I think that's something that resonates with us. But then I ask, how many of us are willing to let other people suffer for their beliefs? Now, I'm not talking about us inflicting that suffering or hoping for that suffering. I'm just talking about the natural consequences of rejecting God's paths or making certain choices. You know, if they want to do that, let them. And let the consequences, you know, then be on their heads, right? Because that's just the way it is. You know, there's a town uh, about an hour north of me called Kokomo, uh, just like the uh, Beach Boys song. It's a sort of classic small industrial city. And they've done better, better than a lot of those kinds of places because they still have a major transmission plant there. But it's still very characterized by sort of post-industrial decay. And it's pretty run down, basically. And the previous mayor was a guy, he was a former union president. He never went to college, right? So he's a blue-collar guy. But he was probably the most dynamic Democratic mayor in the state. I mean, I would have rated him equal or higher than Pete Buttigieg. And he did a ton of work to transform the city and especially the downtown for the better. You know, he invested in parks. He reestablished bus service. He beautified the city with flower plantings. He added bike lanes, etc. And he did all this while actually cutting the city's payrolls, implementing a salary freeze. But I mean, this guy was a real fiscal conservative, you know, more, much more fiscally conservative than most of the conservatives actually are, most of the Republicans actually are. You know, and he decided not to run for another term a couple years ago, and the, the city elected a new mayor and a new council that was very Tea Party and completely opposed to this old mayor's, you know, agenda of civic improvement. And, you know, that's fine. That's their choice. If they want to live in a dump, that's their choice. But then don't come to me with some tale of woe about your town and how everybody else needs to help it. I mean, the stone-cold reality is many of these struggling cities are in the state they're in because they simply aren't willing to change to make things better. Try to make things better, and you'll be savagely attacked by a lot of people. And trying to, you know, I, so if you, if you believe, as I do, that these places are victims of external economic forces in a lot of, and to a great extent— you know, they still got to take responsibility for the things that they, they do control, right? And I'm, it's not my role to force them to live like I think they ought to live. You know, our society is like an alcoholic cousin who refuses to get help. And then, in fact, he brags that he's going to keep on drinking, maybe even drink more. You know, so are we really obligated to keep bailing this guy out of jail every time he gets into trouble? You know, I don't think so. And actually, our society is probably worse than that example because at least our drunk cousin probably doesn't hate us and everything we believe, which a lot of the people in powerful conditions, uh, positions in our country actually very much do. It's just not our responsibility to jump into the breach to bail out all the people who are running the show from the consequences of their own leadership. So what should we do instead? Build up your own family. Build up your church do something for your neighborhood and your actual neighborhoods. And if there's a particular issue that's on your heart, then by all means, look for ways to do something that can make a difference. But maybe instead of a futile effort to try to, like, say, solve the problem of public schools, if that's the issue you care about, start a charter school. Start a classical Christian school. Volunteer to tutor a kid in your actual neighborhood. I'm not saying don't do anything here, right? But the big macro problems of our society are, for most of us, beyond our ability to do much about. You know, and we just need to let nature take its course in most cases. 
And we sure shouldn't be running to the defense of people who hate us and would gladly see us canceled. You know, frankly, I need to do more of that myself. So this podcast is for me. And instead, we need to focus on our focus on the local, focus on our actual communities, our actual neighborhoods, and the actual needs around us, which I can assure you are trouble enough. Thanks for listening.